0: Hi, fellow COVID people, I just want to say um, I am going upstairs at my work. And um, it's kind of cool because I'm walking and talking at the same time.
1: Today has been 196 days since I have been hit with COVID. I just got hit with the most intense fatigue, as if I had started COVID all over again.
0: Um, I've just received my antibody test. Uh, It was positive. Um, I'm still dealing with the effects of the virus. I am weak, fatigued, and tired all the
2: time. My main concern is just the oxygen levels. Oxygen levels are kind of low. I mean, right now, I'm having trouble breathing, you know. I I can breathe just fine. It's just that I get really, really winded.
1: Um, I struggle some days just to get out of bed. Some days I wake up and I am completely 100% myself again. It is a guessing game every
0: day. Okay, so I'm just walking and every time I exhale, I sound like this.
2: It hurts.
1: Day, I'm just clearing my mouth. Day 43.
2: Wow, you can hear me. I sound good. I sound real good. Let's see if I can get up.
0: Let's see if I can get up.
2: Oh, look, I got up. Oh, wow.
0: I'm so excited. I went up the stairs for the first time. In forever. I'm I'm a tad bit winded, but I did it. So anyways, okay, guys, hope you have a good weekend. Keep fighting. Bye.
1: It's day 123 of my journey. I'm alive, which is a blessing. And now I wait to see what's going to appear next.
0: I'm a COVID long hauler. This is a Petri dish side dish, a conversation with Survivor Corps founder Diana Behrendt about COVID-19 and the long haul. We will
2: now introduce our witnesses. Dr. Fauci, let's begin with you.
0: The people you just heard chronicling their COVID journeys day by day, sometimes hour by hour, are all members of a Facebook group for people who
2: are recovering from COVID-19. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you today briefly on the role of the National Institutes of Health Research in addressing COVID-19. The group is called Survivor Corps.
0: We haven't shared their names because they're sharing private health information but many of
2: them have been
0: struggling with COVID for a long time.
2: I bring to your attention the fact that a number of individuals who virologically have recovered from infection, in fact, have persistence measured in weeks to months of symptomatology that does not appear to be due to persistence of the virus.
0: So on September 23rd, when Dr. Anthony Fauci was speaking to the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions about the U.S. coronavirus response. they referred to as long haulers. He said it, right out loud, long haulers.
2: To them, it was a very big deal. They have fatigue, myalgia, fever, and involvement of the neurological system, as well as cognitive abnormalities, such as the inability to concentrate. In addition, we found, to our dismay, that a number of individuals who have completely recovered and apparently are asymptomatic when they have sensitive imaging technologies such as magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, have found to have a disturbing number of individuals who have inflammation of the heart. These are the kind of things that tell us we must be humble and that we do not completely understand the nature of this illness.
0: The members of Survivor Corps, including its founder, Diana Barrent, were elated that Fauci had used some of his time at the Senate hearing to bring what Barrent calls long-term COVID to the world's attention. It's something they'd been trying to do for months. But when Barrett started Survivor Corps, long-term COVID wasn't something anyone knew about. COVID hadn't been around long enough for any American to have experienced anything long-term. It was back in March, but I'll let Barrent tell you the story.
1: My name is Diana Behrendt. I am the founder of Survivor Corps. I am 46 years old and I have two children. I'm married. I have a 14-year-old daughter named Zelda and a 12-year-old son named Spencer.
0: So the sound you're hearing there is Diana getting her COVID test back in March. She recorded it and posted it on her video blog for the New York Post.
1: So today is Wednesday and I got a call late this afternoon that I did indeed test positive for COVID-19.
0: Diana um, is a Long Island mom and a professional okay. photographer with a pretty impressive background in both politics and law. And she's among the first group of Americans to become infected with novel coronavirus.
1: I had gone to a meeting on March 9th, where there were about nine people in attendance. This was back when, um, you know, we thought that COVID was, you know, we knew that it was out there. The, there had just been the first person infected in New York City a few days or a week earlier, um, but it was only supposed to hit the elderly and the immunocompromised and we were told not to, you know, wash your hands, don't touch your face, um, which I listened to. I listened
0: really, really carefully. So back then, there was little talk of masks or effective social distancing. Now, this meeting probably would have happened on Zoom, like all of our meetings. But in early March, their meeting was in person.
1: A couple of the people at the meeting had been at a conference at the Sheridan Hotel in New York City from March 6th. A uh, second to seventh rather, which ended up being a super spreader event. And everybody at the meeting was infected and one person died three weeks later. So that's sort of where my story of my life uh, ends, my, my normal life ends and my COVID life begins.
0: It's also where our conversation really begins. So Diana, when did you start to suspect you might have been infected?
1: The meeting was on a Monday night, March 9th. I woke up on the morning of Friday the 13th. <laughs> um, Friday the 13th, 2020. Um, literally, uh, you know, you can not script it. Um, and I had really every classic symptom, um, and classic symptom that I should add that we knew then. I did. I never had the loss of taste and smell that others have. Um, I mean, COVID is such a bizarre virus in that it truly presents as a constellation of symptoms, with each person having a completely unique subset. But I woke up with a hundred and three fever. Um, I had I felt like I had an elephant sitting on my chest, um, a massive headache. Um, I had an I I had a respiratory infection from the moment I woke up. I hadn't had a fever in you know well over a decade. Um, I I really have always bragged about my immunity. Uh, maybe not so much anymore. So I immediately grabbed my laptop and I went into my bedroom and I stayed in isolation for eighteen days. Um, I was convinced from the moment that I woke up that morning that I had it. I just had this, I just had this feeling that there was nothing else it could be.
0: So when you got tested and then it was positive, how did you feel then? I was, um, I was relieved actually when I found out that it was
1: COVID because I felt like I was already so sick that if I was that sick, I might as well have this over with. If it wasn't going to kill me, you know, and I felt somewhat confident that I was going to get through it, I was still pretty nervous until I got to, you know, day 11, day 12. That's when I was able to breathe a sigh of relief. Well, I was also able to breathe, too, that helped. Um, the, the two coming at the same time, you know, <laughs> were not coincidental. I I'd had no idea that this is something that could stay with you for months, for years, that could damage your body beyond repair.
0: Even without knowing that, it must have been scary. I mean, it's a brand new virus. We didn't really know much of anything about it back then. There,
1: there is that degree of terror of having a novel virus that the world is obsessed with and you're not under any medical care. No, I mean, unless you go to the hospital, the instructions that you're given is don't go to the hospital unless you literally think that you're dying. So you're not under anyone's medical care and nobody understands anything about this virus that has invaded your system and is the oddest virus you have ever experienced. I mean, it just really is not like anything else. And, um, you know, I started to get tremendous GI issues during the second week, it took me to get to page 10 of Google Scholar to find a an academic study that reported four people in Wuhan as having had diarrhea. Uh, I thought that I had a stomach virus on top of COVID because at that point, nobody knew that GI issues were a, an extraordinarily common part of COVID. I would close my eyes and have hallucinations, visual hallucinations, um, headaches so bad that I texted my best friend who's a doctor, um, she happens to be a neurologist, asking if it was possible that I had encephalitis because my brain felt like it was about to pop out of my
0: skull. Diana tells me even with all of those really awful symptoms, she had what she describes as the Tylenol and Gatorade variety of COVID, you know, pain relief and hydration, right? So she didn't have a really hard case at all, she says. She video blogged for the New York Post throughout her isolation.
1: And I became the face of the non-hospitalized COVID patient and I was an odd piece of good news as the city around me was literally burning. Um, you know, I was the face of the person who survives, who can get through this and it's okay. Um, not everyone's going to end up on a ventilator. You might have an experience just like mine and this is how you get through it. And um, it brought a lot of comfort, I think, to a lot of people. And so people got attached to my story and my COVID story and during that time, I started to get emails from friends all forwarding me um, a solicitation from Mount Sinai, who had established the first convalescent, um, the COVID convalescent plasma program. And, you know, I started to get the same email from, you know, a dozen people because I was the only person that anyone knew who had COVID, and Mount Sinai was the first program out there. And I started to do research on convalescent plasma, and I became obsessed. I mean, this was the ultimate way of making lemonade out of lemons. If I could, at the conclusion of my isolation, go donate my plasma and save lives, I was so inspired by that idea. Um, The idea that so many of the answers to the mysteries of this virus, this virus that was this. You know, novel scourge in the world that the answers were in bodies like mine, and that I could help science um, by offering myself up as a subject study, by donating my plasma, by, you know, participating in all of these trials. And I realized that if I had that power as an individual, what a coalition could do what a community of survivors could do, the power for good, the, the, what we could give to science um, would be extraordinary. And so it was that in mind that I started Survivor Corps while I was still in isolation on March 24th in my bedroom mm-hmm. and with the mission of mobilizing an army of survivors to donate their plasma and support science in every way possible. And here we are. It's you know the end of October, and we are over 112,000 members. Um, we are the largest COVID grassroots movement
0: in the world. Diana started Survivor Corps to get people like herself with blood rich with COVID-fighting antibodies to donate their plasma to save others fighting COVID. And she's donated a ton of hers. She's still advocating for that, by the way. And she was also hoping to involve herself and others in all kinds of research studies about the coronavirus. She says she just wanted to do her part to fight this pandemic any way she could. Survivor Corps wasn't started to advocate for people with long term COVID, something it's now known for, mostly because back in March, COVID hadn't been around long enough for anyone to know about long term COVID, not even the extremely well informed group at Survivor Corps.
1: We had no idea, although I will say it wasn't long until we discovered um, Survivor Corps has been the canary in the COVID coal mine from day one because we're the ones who are hearing the voices on the ground. Remember, just like I didn't go to my general practitioner, nobody goes to their general practitioner with COVID. So nobody is hearing the stories of non-hospitalized patients. And non-hospitalized patients have a very different experience than hospitalized patients we've been put on no medications. We've been put on no anticoagulants. We're not under under anyone's supervision in any way, shape, or form. And so we started to see, we saw COVID toes months before it hit the media. We've seen all of these things before they hit the media. You know, we see these trends and it's one thing to see one person, five people, 10 people. But when you start to, the numbers start to go up, you realize that you're looking at really relevant medical data that people need to be aware of. The CDC has said that one in three people are not recovering. Of those one in five young, healthy people with no pre-existing conditions, remember when they define young as 18 to 34, I'm 46. I don't count in that category. Um, So, you know, when you start to look at the numbers, look at the metrics. What are we counting? Let's say we're at 8.2 and 8.2 million infections at this point. The CDC, by the CDC's own count, we are at, you know, two and a half million more people suffering from long-term COVID right now. And you don't need to
0: be an epidemiologist to do the math. Right. So remember, Diana was pretty sick, but her case was manageable. She was able to care for herself at home and even video blog every day. No big deal, right? She's not a long hauler, right?
1: I was recently diagnosed with COVID onset glaucoma, and they found fraying of the capillaries in my eyes and dark areas suggestive of micro blood clots. And... Coincidentally, I had just gone for a full eye exam before having COVID. So I had a baseline for the pressure in my eyes, which um, went up times three uh, since I had had COVID.
0: And those excruciating headaches she described from when she was sick, you know, the ones that were bad enough that she called her friend, the neurologist, to see if she might have encephalitis. Diana's getting physical therapy at Mount Sinai in New York. And the therapist
1: said that she has never seen a head with, that presented as having had such a severe trauma as mine without having had a trauma. Um, the, COVID, the, COVID, the COVID was the trauma. And keep in mind, again, I had a very average case. I had the Tylenol and Gatorade variety of COVID. There was ne- never a moment that I thought I was going to have to go to the hospital realistically. I mean, I had fears, but not nothing realistic.
0: But in every interview I've heard or seen, Diana says she's extremely lucky. She said that to me in our interview. So why does she think that? We are
1: seeing members in their 20s, in their 30s, having heart attacks and strokes months after infection. They are having COVID onset diabetes, arthritic situations, dermatological issues, hair loss, um, hearing loss, tinnitus, a severe neurological issues, brain fog doesn't even begin to describe what these people are experiencing. They are completely debilitated. We are seeing people in their 20s in wheelchairs. These are people who were healthy People. They were marathon runners. They were fitness instructors, and you know that's not to say that it's the average person experiencing long-term COVID is a 44-year-old woman with no pre-existing conditions. Let that sink in. The truth of it is, is that most people who are experiencing long-term COVID would not be able to do this interview with you right now. They wouldn't be able to sit here for 30 minutes and have a coherent conversation, and have the attention span and the physical energy to sit here. Sh- showering is a you know is all some people can do. And so when you think about it, how are these people going to go back to work? How are they going to be treated by disability laws by in, by insurance companies? Um, what happens? You know, my I I gave COVID to my husband and my children. My Kids now have pre-existing conditions, as do I. Um, you know, the the policy impacts on all of this is
0: really, really hard to wrap your head around. So, Diana, you brought up your kids there, and I'm so sorry that they were sick. Um, I have a 15-year-old, and and I've not been able to figure out how so many people have become so certain that kids don't get it. I mean... They do. I've talked to a number of experts and pediatricians, infectious diseases experts. Kids do get it. Um, True, most of them don't suffer that much while they're infected. But we don't know what happens next for the virus, even in kids. We are looking at a tremendous
1: secondary public health crisis that could last decades. We have no idea how this virus has affected our children. We don't know what the long-term impacts are. We're very cavalier about our children's health when it comes to this virus. Just because they don't manifest you know, significant symptoms most of the time, we're not looking at the fact that we're seeing asymptomatic pe- asymptomatic adults show up with tremendous heart damage months down the line. Um, I'm not sure why we're so confident that the same is
0: not happening with our children. So when people become advocates or they become passionate about a specific subject, as you have they often hold specific people and specific stories in their heart, or they're advocating for communities that can't advocate for themselves, you know, giving voice to the voiceless. Are you doing that? And if so, who are you fighting for?
1: So that's, I love that question. I love that question. There, and I, I, there are a few different groups. So, one, Are the people who are suffering in silence who don't know what's going on with them? They think that they're crazy and they've gone to the doctor who's told them that they're, they've confirmed that they're crazy Um, and they're not. If you had COVID and it's been over three weeks and you don't feel better and you're, you know, whether you have felt terrible consistently or it comes in waves, those are the two ways that long-term COVID can play out. You are not crazy. You need to find a new doctor. You need medical help. It's so important. That is one group who needs to hear this message. The second group are the people who know that they have it and the world is still not listening and policies aren't being changed and therapeutics aren't being offered. And healthcare isn't being made available to them. They need their message heard loud and clear by every decision maker out there. And the third group who needs to hear this are the people who aren't taking this seriously, who are still comparing this to the flu, who think that this is a binary situation where it's a matter of either coming down with the flu or dying you know, or ending up on a ventilator, let's say. Because our mortality rate is is going down, um, because we've learned so much about how to take care of people in hospitals, but we haven't learned how to take care of people not in hospitals. And I would love for those people to come visit us on Survivor Corps and read through some of these stories. And when you read stories about people in their 20s who were marathon runners last year and are now writing their living wills and unsure whether they will live to see their wedding date seven, eight months after their Tylenol and Gatorade you know, version of COVID. I promise you, you will change your mind.
0: Okay. One more thing. So... So when you look at your Survivor Corps Facebook page and you think back to, you know, that moment in March when you were in isolation with just your laptop, after you'd created the page and you clicked publish and it was just you, you were the only member, and then you look at it today, how do you feel?
1: Um, I think it's the most heartwarming thing in the world because... It is it is the most look, the, the individual posts are heartbreaking, literally heartbreaking. Um, one after another after another. But the spirit of the group is heartwarming in a way that I literally can't put words to. Um I, I often refer to Survivor Core as the epicenter of hope for that reason. Um I mean, just to be the fact that we have created the most civil, supportive conversation going on among 112,000 uh, strangers in America, to me is, shows what we really do have in common is humanity in a moment when um, it's hard to see it.
0: The epicenter of hope. I love that. We all need a little hope these days, right? And it seems like we're going to have to create it ourselves, within ourselves, and within the communities we create as this pandemic rages on with no end in sight. There are no political or really any other boundaries in Survivor Corps because this virus does not recognize any kind of boundaries at all. Your belief that masks don't do anything does not protect you if you don't wear a mask. The virus just follows your breath into your lungs and starts replicating. And when you breathe out or sneeze or cough, COVID catches a ride on your droplets showering those around you with the virus, no matter whether any of you think the pandemic is a hoax. How to have hope in the face of adversity? Well, it's the greatest lesson these long haulers can teach us, but here's another one. Though we've learned a lot about SARS-CoV-2, the COVID virus, since January, we don't know nearly enough yet. It appears to create chronic conditions in some, even those who never experienced symptoms. How many people will be dealing with the fallout of COVID infection for months? Years, for the rest of their lives? Does that include children? Does it make sense to just blithely send our children out into the world unprotected right now because they're unlikely to end up on a ventilator? We don't know. What did Dr. Fauci say to the Senate? He said, we must be humble We do not completely understand the nature of this illness. Dr. Fauci, who has been studying this virus and the illness it causes and nothing else since January with the best team of infectious diseases docs in the world, doesn't completely understand the nature of the virus. It humbles him. This virus man It has, at the time of this recording, killed more than 225,000 Americans and more than a million people worldwide. That is humbling, Dr. Fauci. So I think that we've really hit on the things that will get us through these times, these, these pandemic times, and carry us on into the rest of our life. Hope and humility. Be hopeful. Be humble. This episode of Petri Dish Side Dish was produced by Dominic Anthony Walsh and me. Our sound designer is Jacob Rosati. Our executive producer is Fernanda Camarena. Texas Public Radio's news director is Dan Katz. Mark Mehmet is the managing editor of the Texas Newsroom. This podcast is a production of TPR and the Texas Newsroom, a collaboration between public radio stations across Texas and NPR. I'm Bonnie Petrie. Talk to you soon.